0: Welcome. This is Jeff Johnston, host of the Living Undeterred podcast, and I have my good friend, Brandon Ernest Clark on the podcast this morning. Welcome, Brandon. How you doing, man?
1: Thank you, Jeff. I'm I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on.
0: You know, you and I met towards the tail end of our Living Undeterred US tour. I think it was, it was I know it was really hot um, <laughs> in Salt Lake City, right? That's where we met.
1: Correct. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And we did a stop out there and, um, The primary purpose of the stop, we partnered with some people that had um, suicide awareness and mental health awareness with the veterans of our community. Um, That was kind of the main, but then we had other people show up as well. I've met you on LinkedIn like it seems like I do everybody these days. Um, One of the benefits of COVID was it kind of forced us on the platforms like LinkedIn, where I met some amazing people and you made the stop out. You and I have gone back and forth on LinkedIn, kind of small-talked, and uh, I was, you know, admire your passion, your courage, your your will to share your story. Which I think today, that's what we want to do. We want to give you an opportunity here to talk about your your mental health uh, advocacy, some of your personal stories that you have been given an opportunity to become better from, and not bitter at, <laughs> as I talk about a lot. Um, where do you want to start? You, you, I mean, you have a, you have a very interesting story. I follow a lot of your posts on LinkedIn and you've got some things that you're working on therapy for therapy wise, for solutions for treatment, but then your story has some interesting Genesis as well. Um, and, um, some family stories as well. I've seen you post about too, that you were candid about.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. So the, it, it goes back to family history. I mean, the. The things that I wasn't aware of were were kind of the bullets that that kind of came back to to come after me and Mm -hmm. the more that I became aware of what my family had been through then I was able to just have clarity as to what I was experiencing what I was going through as far as genetically going that mental illness runs in my family and Mm -hmm. you know wanting to desiring healing for myself and my family and kind of the only way to go through it was to go through the valley of shadow of death um to to go through the adversity in a way that was not fun but was necessary and um just that that family history component was critical so did you have
0: your family maybe not share everything as you were you were growing up, and then at some point you started realizing you were having some mental health challenges, and that's when you found out that, hey, my family did as well, or did you know about these things for the most part?
1: Yeah, I sort of knew about it, but the genetics piece of that it could happen to me too was kind of, uh, wasn't considered by, especially by my parents. Because my, my mo- grandpa on my mom's side, he was institutionalized starting in the 80s for, for alcoholism and, and bipolar. Okay. And he he struggled with that. And it was kind of just looked at that that was his struggle. Um, we're different. We don't have alcohol problems. So we're going to be okay. Mm, I gotcha. Uh, you.
0: So they thought the root of everything was alcohol related. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, what age did you start to have these challenges?
1: So, it really started when I was four. My my dad accidentally ran me over, and mm. that kind of that event shaped my childhood, shaped my teenage years, and my young adult years. Um, I didn't realize the significance of traumatic brain injury and how impactful that, that can be. And
0: four years old. Wow. And you have to think of how that impacted your dad as well.
1: Totally. Yeah. He, he, he's, I kind can't of even the, imagine.
0: I mean, I can't even imagine the, even though there was, you know, obviously it was an accident, but just still the guilt that he must have carried, you know,
1: the, the, the what if
0: th- games that you play in situations like that.
1: The main thing for him was, you know, you hear stories about people were prompted that God, says, you know, look out, look behind you, and, um, you know, get that, that inspirational story of, you know, mm-hmm. the, an accident, prevented. but for him, he didn't get any such prompting.
0: Did that question, he, did that question his faith? What faith was he prior to this, and did it, did it question it?
1: Yeah, so out in Utah, there's, uh, Latter-day Saints were, are the majority of, of the faith out here. Mm-hmm. and so he's he's very devout very very faithful and you know I didn't question his faith to the point to where he he gave up but there was just there were years where he was just kind of mad at god a little bit and mm-hmm. that was his struggle to reconcile you know with his faith and i think like we came together like it it grew, it grew our family closer um but for me personally, the mental health side of it really was challenging, and I struggled with anger management and it's pretty well noted that traumatic brain injury uh, is tied to anger management and that they are they're, they're tied and linked
0: so maybe help me understand like on a scale of one to ten how severe was this?
1: Yeah, so the paramedics and the The emergency service—they were very, like, concerned. Um, For example, about two weeks after one of the the paramedics called my dad to say, like, uh, check in on me because a lot of the times the the statistics that they were told was like one in a thousand chance that I would have lived. They—they were pretty. It was severe. Like my skull was fractured. Uh, the quarter size of my skull was punctured and was just resting on the membrane of my of my brain. And the neurosurgeon that went in and to to evaluate the to evaluate it, he's he said, like they had to elevate my skull and sew it back together, essentially. Mm.
0: And this affected you or impacted you all the way up to this moment literally
1: yeah certainly and i i remember as a child just questioning why didn't i just die i I was just Mm -hmm. struggling with the pain of you know just life is hard and you know not not knowing the the impact of the the accident but it was there like i i questioned whether i should still be living and it elevated so the, the, yeah, go ahead. When you got into high
0: school, did you start experimenting with drugs and alcohol and painkillers and, and things to try to numb the pain? Or did you just figure out some ways to cope with what you were going through?
1: Yeah, in my childhood and teenage years, sports were definitely a, a key yeah. outlet for me. And right. I, would, I would say those helped as well as my my mom's attitude of how alcohol had affected her her life she was pretty strong in her willpower to say no to that and she passed okay. on that willpower to me as well
0: so she was an alcoholic and she gave up alcohol
1: no she just saw the impact that it had on her dad and so oh, i got gotcha. you she, she gotcha. never experimented but she said no that's not going to happen did you life. ever
0: struggle with substance abuse and alcohol yourself
1: i didn't Mm-mm.
0: okay Well, that's good because that's one less thing you have to cross off the box. You know, it's one thing you have to, one less thing you have to, or as they say, one less beast you have to slay. You know, um, when you're going through something traumatic, the more things that you have to fight against the, the, obviously the tougher that it gets. And that's the co-occurring issues with mental illness that you and I've talked about before is that sometimes we spend a lot of time on, on one thing, like let's quit your drinking or, you know, let's, let's fix your attitude, let's say, or fix your mindset and then we lose focus if there's some other issues. So you talk about bipolar. So are you clinically bipolar then diagnosed?
1: Yeah. So like the family history piece is there. So okay. for sure, um, I, I, I go and see a doctor under the framework that I have bipolar and I've, you know, it's. I had two manic episodes that were telltale to where, you know, I was, I was in psychosis. I was not myself. I was out there pursuing pretty lofty goals that, that were beyond me at the time. Uh, for right. example, uh, attempting to start a worldwide movement through it, through a YouTube channel. And I was not sleeping for two, two weeks. And, my, my energy was just all over the place. And, and I, I have a medical background. Um, And so, you know, the scientific method of, you know, rule out, is this, Mm -hmm. is this what I have rule out? Mm -hmm. No, no, because I certainly had post-traumatic stress from, from my childhood. And Mm -hmm. for, for some time I was, you know, looking at the framework, getting help for that, Or trying to get help for that, going to therapy, getting, um, meeting with doctors, and things got worse as I was just trying to get help for post traumatic stress. And why'd they get worse, you think? So, I, in 2019, I, I worked a graveyard shift and I was working in a psychiatric setting. Oh, wow. and, And I was being exposed to, all the mental illnesses. I was working at the state hospital in Utah, and okay. there they have beds for every county to, to bring people in. And so I was working with people with bipolar, people with schizophrenia, geriatric, pediatric. And for four months, I, I was working a, a graveyard shift on Wednesday nights while trying to study for the MCAT course for medical school. Okay. And the the stress I was undergoing of you know trying to um pursue medical school as well as you know having the the trauma of my childhood, I hadn't reconciled a lot of that trauma mm-hmm. um, and so as well, that facility was the same place where my grandpa was oh, wow. in the eighties, so going Maybe there triggered,
0: triggered some things right
1: it yeah, it triggered some things, knowing that you know my grandpa's condition that he was there and man, something unwound for me while I was working those graveyard shifts, getting that sleep deprivation, not, not getting the adequate rest that, that we need. um, And it, it unwound me to the point where I started having symptoms of mania. I didn't know what they were, but Mm -hmm. I was, talking my wife's ear off for two hours, couldn't couldn't shut off my, my mouth. Like I was just talkative, talkative, talkative. Mm-hmm. And I was getting all these ideas. I'd never had significant you know flow of ideas that was overwhelming to the point where I, I couldn't sleep. Like I was just set on a new path that I'd never, or a new direction in life. How were you medicated during this time? Was some of this stuff maybe from medication? So I wasn't medicated. Um, what was insightful was I learned after the fact, about a year after that first incident, that there are three triggers for, for mania in bipolar, and they are drugs, alcohol, and working graveyard shifts. Really? So exactly, yeah. And it all I would comes never back.
0: The first two, I think, would be pretty <laughs> obvious, but working graveyard shifts, that's that specific, huh? Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
1: And it all comes back to sleep because I mean, our Jordan Peterson, uh, he says that for bipolar, it's a mood disorder. That's a circadian rhythm disorder. So our circadian rhythm is, it's it's determined by the sun and our pattern to go to bed when the sun goes down and to Mm. wake up when the sun comes up. And so working a graveyard shift goes all against circate that natural circadian rhythm interesting and, and so for me sometimes it's the yeah.
0: simplest things you know you go back to occam's razor where it's sometimes just the simplest things are the best solutions and you think of something like all the complexities we have in mental health and then you look at something just sleep <laughs> i mean it's been sleep has been the remedy for so many problems and challenges for so many years but we tend to not give it much credence with mental health. You know, it's just something really not talked about. Although I think it's coming, I think it's more talked about today than in the past. And I've noticed myself personally, the last couple of years, I'm getting up to an hour more sleep than I did previous this. And I'm 56. So I normally ran on anywhere from, you know, six to seven hours of sleep a night. Now I'm pushing eight which is great, but I almost feel like sometimes I'm wasting too much time sleeping. Like I wanted, I'm like you, I wanted, I'm like, God, I slept till seven fifty today. What the heck? I could have been working on something for two hours. You know, it's like, I wake up feeling guilty sometimes. Although when I'm, w- when I wake up like at six and I'm tired, I don't feel guilty going back to bed. <laughs> so
1: I think I read sleep is
0: sleep al- is underrated.
1: <laughs> Albert Einstein he slept for 10 hours that was his routine
0: yeah you know i i don't know it's just uh it's whatever works for you and i think that's where when you and i met you know i talk a lot about my story when at my presentations and about my coping mechanisms meditation and exercise i'm you know i'm not a, am not a soul, i'm not a compulsive exerciser but i'm i'm uh, focused And I have this thing in my head that if I don't do two hours a day, I'll die. That's, that's my mindset. Maybe that is compulsive. I don't know. (laughs) But, you know, I think for you, you know, whatever works, um, if it's trying to get better sleep or more sleep, or I know you've talked a few about, I want to talk about the TMS a little bit. Um, you've made some posts on your, um, on your site, you know, you wearing the, the helmet i guess lack okay. of a better word but I'd, I'd love to kind of segue into maybe some of the things you do for your coping mechanisms so people listening and watching this that are going through something similar can can relate to you know you and i both even though we're both mental health advocates our stories are fairly different but they're very similar as well
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know if you peel back everything they they are very similar.
1: Yeah, I I can go into kind of the things I've tried. And the, yeah, this,
0: I think that'd be great the, for people listening to this like, what did you, what age did you start trying things and maybe some of the things that have worked
1: and some of the things that haven't worked for you? Man, like one of the, the areas that I've struggled with. So the post-traumatic stress there's. Like th- there are different kinds of therapies you can try. So, you know, one of the one of the very first that I got into was um, EMDR. Um, that's that's a bilateral stimulation. What I what that means is it activates both hemispheres of our brain. On right. like all it alternates the stimulation of each hemisphere. Kind of like a metronome when you're when you're playing right. a musical instrument right it it metronomes it in a way that you know it's consistent because when when we're in a sympathetic nervous system response um we are in fight or flight and our emotional brain is just non-stop go 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 and it's just cycling really fast really rapidly and emdr is able to Put the metronome effect on to, to almost like hypnotize that traumatic response. So and
0: EMDR is is that I, I, a st- it's
1: called ahead. eye move eye movement desensitization, uh, okay, rehabilitation or something like that.
0: And that was one of the early methods that you used to try to get to get yourself in a better place.
1: Yeah, definitely. So twenty twenty was I did it for a good month. And I was able to, I, I had somebody close to me die in 2016, um, a mentor that helped me want to go to medical school. He said, Brian, you make a great doctor. Um, have you thought about going to medical school? And he kind of got that medical field um, interest in me that I hadn't had previous. And three months after that conversation, I find out that he died of a heart attack and Mm. that that was really, really hard. And I didn't know how to grieve, um, you know, the death of someone. The the way I coped was like, it's like I I became just very driven to pursue the goal of medical school. And to the extent that I was come hell or high water, I'm going to bring honor to this mentor's name. And, it was a kind of energy that, that wasn't sustainable and wasn't for the right reasons. Um, I, I needed right. to go to medical school for me, uh, not, not for someone else. And,
0: hmm. I can relate it, so much to that. I can relate to so much of that. Even my phrase at Living Undeterred, purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. I'm often reminded by the experts that you know passion has a, has a tank <laughs> that can run out. You know, and if you're just fueled by passion, you may not get anything done. You may not really change the world. You've got to have an intentional purpose and focus. You know, I like to say I, I could run out. I could run out of a lot of things, money, even time, but I can't run out of passion. And I, I have to be careful because I think you could potentially run out of passion by getting burned out.
1: Yep, and that's that's exactly what happened to me because then I, because I was on medical school interview in Texas, I was asked if you were a high school principal, how would you address mental health for your students, and so this mental health kind of piece narrative came into my my framework uh, because I didn't get into that medical school, but that question kind of was running through my mind of of mental health and. That's actually what prompted me to go and work at the state hospital in 2019. And like, I was like, okay, I I feel like I need to learn about mental health. It seems relevant because burnout is talked about in the medical field. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, I honestly feel like my internal um, self was saying, you know, I might burn out. So I'd like to learn about mental health so I don't get burned out and working that graveyard shift was what did me in further <laughs> that, that yeah. actually led my burn. Um, and so, man, as far as what helped and what I ended up trying, the EMDR was kind of the first help that I pursued after my burnout. Um, and then, you know, I just dived into kind of mindfulness techniques breathing yeah. techniques, yeah. You know, Me
0: meditation, meditation. Yep. So T- TMS, is that a version
1: of EMDR? So TMS is a, the so EMDR doesn't really stimulate your brain. Okay. Um, it's a vibration, like you have it held in your hands. Okay. So your left hand vibrates while there's light there. Then they can have lights that, also direct your eye movement okay and so there's stimulation there's visual stimulation and then there's physical stimulation and so the visual and physical stimulation together are what metronome and hypnotize your and this has been helpful for you yeah so it, it's really to help reduce the the fight or flight if you notice inside the anxiety yourself, it could be anxiety, okay. uh, fight or fight or flight is kind of, there's an emotional response. There's you know as well as anxiety response. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The racing heart, a racing heart. I mean, it's, it's, you're looking at
0: evolution. I mean, we've had fight or flight since we lived in caves and, you know, That's just part of being a human being. So it's not trying to eliminate that emotive state. It's more trying to manage it. Correct? Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because you can't eliminate out anxiety. This is where I talk to people all the time. I'm not, I'm just a dad from Iowa. I have no medical background in this stuff. I just, I'm kind of common sense and very pragmatic. I'm like, we were gifted these evolutionary tools to make us realize there's a lion behind the bush or you know, somebody coming up with a club to to kill me and take my, my, my mate at the time, you know, so we've got these things innate to us that I think it's, you know, unfortunate that we want to try to get rid of some of these things. Like I think anxiety managed correctly can be a very good tool. Now I used to tell my sons when they were playing sports, I said, you know, getting, getting nervous and getting anxious are two different things. Nervous means you're, you're afraid, you're afraid of failure. You're afraid of saying the wrong thing. Like you're nervous about going on to public speak, public speaking. That's a negative connotation, but anxious isn't. I think getting anxious can actually stimulate everything in your body to give you a little bit more, more juice, you know, get you jacked up for the big event, but anxiety, that fear of Fear of, I think anxiety, again, I think I'm nitpicking a little bit here, or maybe looking at ways we can help reframe these, help people deal with these things. I think in its right terms, having anxiety can be beneficial. Um, but what we don't want to do is be sitting up all night worrying about something we have to do the next day to the point where we're not sleeping. And then that anxiety becomes a problem, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's certainly what happened to me. I didn't know how to manage the anxiety, and it got to a point where i I knew by like ten p m like my anxiety is 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 so bad that you know I might not get to bed till two a m <laughs> like I'm gonna have a four four hour battle with with anxiety, and I don't know how to manage it yeah so
0: as a mental health advocate, do you spend most of your time? I mean, you, you don't have any like patients, you're not a physician or clinical individual, right? Do do you have clients and patients?
1: Yeah. So for now, my, my mission statement says my purpose is to, um, my purpose is to empower and uplift myself, my family, and my community incrementally with hope, support, and healing through entrepreneurship, music, speaking, writing. And so for now, I'm primarily focused on myself and my family, and I'm inching towards my community. Um, I I don't want to, that was one of my issues early on was I was extending myself a bit too far too soon. Mm -hmm. So for now, I'm really focused on myself and my family, and I'm going to get there to, to turn my purpose to, you know, helping my community and helping others beyond the scope of, you know, my, my local community, if you will.
0: That's very wise. Um, I don't know your age, but you're younger than me, but I think it's important that self-care as an advocate is emphasized because I know, and so do you people in this business of mental health advocacy that themselves are a train wreck Yeah, where they are running from first thing in the morning, late at night, eating poorly, Maybe alcohol, taking meds. All day long, they deal with other people's problems. It's like one person you're on the phone with for an hour, all you hear is bad, negative stuff. And then you go to the next person, same thing. And it's like all day long, putting out fires, putting out fires, you know. And then you get home and it's very difficult to get away from that, to separate yourself from that. So, mental health advocates, a lot of them get really pulled into the abyss. And I've seen really good. Well, I know of mental health advocates that have done the ultimate, you know, taken their own lives uh, as well-known advocates for mental health. And that's in and of itself very scary that someone who's so passionate to help others actually gets lost themselves in this quest or this desire to to be be somebody for everybody, you know, at our expense. And I run into that too. And last Christmas is where I had my biggest brush with, you know, everything I've ever been at came to a head last Christmas. So I'm coming up on a one-year anniversary when I had my first role. Well, I would consider my first brush with suicidal ideation myself, which I don't talk about a lot. Um, but I think it's important I do because, A, people look at living undeterred as bulletproof, and I'm not. I'm just, I'm no less human than Brandon Ernest Clark. Um. But you know, if I can be such a strong advocate, and then at the same time have moments where you know I was in the abyss, as I like to call it, then then pretty much anyone can, you know. And that's why I think self care, and that's why I applaud what you're doing, Brandon. Before you're going out and saving the world, you've got to save yourself first, (laughs) or you're not going to be much good to anybody else, right? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, Brandon Ernest. So I, I put. Ernest on, on my LinkedIn, Brandon Ernest Clark, uh, because that's, that's my grandpa's name. He was born in 1923. And around that same time, my, my great grandma, so my grandpa's mother, she, she was notoriously, she loved celebrities and, you know, the, the famous people of that time. And one of the The World War One heroes that wasn't involved in the war but was an explorer by the name of Ernest Shackleton. Oh yeah, I know his
0: story quite well.
1: Yeah, so Ernest Shackleton, I'm pretty sure my grandpa was named after him. So part of my, so so my my middle name comes from my grandpa, who comes likely from Ernest Shackleton. So I really like to internalize that story of. Going to Antarctica yeah. and exploring. This is past March. The the ship that they that got stuck in the ice for the Endurance, right? The endur- Endurance. They they found yeah. it and yeah. So, just basically summed up. Ernest Shackleton was stranded in Antarctica and yeah. was able to get his crew of twenty seven men.
0: They actually back, went back, back for him, right?
1: Yeah, he went back for him. So because first they had the to, first
0: trip he came, he went back and then he came back and got him.
1: Yeah. So they left like twenty four at you know a checkpoint basically, and then they had to go through treacherous waters to to get to another island where they could get a bigger ship. And hmm. you know, for this is a two year stranded trip or something like that, but. Jackson's leadership in saying no man is left behind. He mm-hmm. made his prom. He made and kept his promises to to get everyone back. to safety.
0: It's funny because the ad he ran in the paper preceding his trip to recruit men to go is used now, kind of as you know. They, they've I don't know if you've seen the ad, but it's like. <laughs> I don't know, maybe, maybe when Molly's editing this, she could put the actual ad up because you could Google the ad on the internet and find it, but it's a little thing they had in the paper that basically is like, you know, <laughs> good pay, you probably won't live, you know, trip of a lifetime, but he was very, very clear on, this the is a part, exactly. And you know what? He had, he had almost a line of people that were interested in going. It was like, you know, it's, it, I don't know if sold out's the right word, but it filled up quickly. Um. But today, if you ran that ad, you wouldn't get anybody to show up because it seems like we just have less courageous people. We have more people on the planet, but less courageous people. We're a society afraid to take risks and couple that with all the other issues. And this is where I was going to kind of segue from Ernest Shackleton to another question I have for you. Where have we dropped the ball as a society? Why are we have, why do we have so many just unhappy miserable, negative, angry, bitter individuals in a time when we should be we should be abundant with knowledge and wisdom and experiences and awe and gratitude and we should really love life what we have but we we just we don't. We have more things we've ever had ever ever in the history of not just humankind but the history of America. Um but we're just we're not doing well.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What what what's the problem, in your opinion?
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I I would say there there is a lot of wisdom and truth in the philosophy of stoicism, and
0: I love stoicism, man. That's my my, my like, big thing.
1: And and one of the key mainstays of stoicism is that there's opposition in all things, and you have to face that opposition. With courage, in order to get through it, and you can't run away from your problems. Basically, like you have to, not not in the sense that you just do it without emotion. I don't think stoicism, like because people say the phrase like, "Oh, they're just stoic. They they don't show emotion." I, right. I think that does a that does a big disservice to the philosophies that we are incredibly emotional beings, and we can we can suffer and cry through our suffering and and it's really how do we use our adversity to transform ourselves um that's that in my opinion, that's the basis of of stoicism it's is using what happens to you as a means to change and grow It's
0: like I said at the end of the my presentations, do things happen to you or do things happen for you and that that's that's stoicism in its in its essence, you know the ability to look at things from a different lens, right? Because we have a tendency to just look at things from our perspective. And Stoicism allows you to almost see things from, you know, a different self, you know, different perspective. And reframing is a core ability of the successful Stoics back in the day. And we don't do that, you know, I mean, somebody cuts us off and we get we yell at them or it just we're so reactionary we, we don't have any control of our emotions anymore and i think and maybe you'll agree but some of it has to do with just our inability to pause and reflect and observe you know be be aware of what's going on around us instead of being so in tune with having to react to everything sometimes just Let it go. You know, don't react. Observing and not identifying with things is a real big part of Stoicism, and in combination with meditation, it's been life saving for me. I I literally don't know if I would still be here today if I didn't have the ability to reframe and to not identify with my thoughts. And I got that from meditation, which I never done until my son died. I I, dude, I have attention deficit. I, I may seem chill right now talking to you, but I work really hard at trying to slow my talking down and to slow my, even my body movements because I have full blown attention deficit, but I don't take any meds. So it's been intentional work and you probably have attention deficit too, Brandon, you were talking about your hyper-focused and you couldn't shut your brain off. I mean, dude, that's, that's attention deficit. You notice I don't use the word disorder. Mm -hmm. I think it's important that, especially with kids, we don't throw these words around haphazardly and you say attention deficit disorder to a child and they're going to really believe it's a disorder. If you just say attention deficit and stop, they won't. And we don't do that again. That's the adults dropping the ball with our kids. And I think, I think the stoicism thing is really big. I think you're onto something. And you see a resurgence with Ryan holiday. Um, even James Clear, you know, a lot of the guys out there, uh, Rich Roll on his podcast, he's talked about this. Um, you kind of see a, re, a, re, um, a new a renaissance, I guess, of, of Stoicism. So I'm happy you brought that up because it's kind of a core part of my day-to-day uh, existence is my ability to, I mean, during the day, sometimes in the middle of a busy moment, I'll just relish it. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah. It's like my phone's same. ringing.
0: My phone's ringing. The doorbell's going. I got my granddaughter here. She's running around the house. And my son's here with his girlfriend. We got a football game on. Sometimes I will just stop and just say, at some point in my life, none of this is going to be here. This is in the moment. And all the stress goes away. All the anxiety goes away. I just, I think of myself living in a house with nobody around me being an old person with nobody here. And it's just me and that day's coming and we're all going to be that old version of us today. So anyway, I'm happy you brought that up because stoicism has been a really big aspect of my life and seems like it's an important part of yours as well.
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah. Thanks.
0: So what's next for you? Um, projects, do you have uh, a book? Do you have, Podcast, I mean, what 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 things of advocacy are you interested in?
1: Yeah, so, you know, being a guest on podcasts just to serve other communities, that's that's really big for me is, you know, I, I want to partially get my name out there and, right. you know, being a guest on podcasts is, is a good way to um, continue that process of getting outside my comfort zone being vulnerable uh that's it's, huge
0: that's so big that, man
1: that it helps so me it helps me even though it's scary like it's always after the fact it's it was worth it i got to see my journey and my pers- my mind from a whole new perspective getting input from someone else who's asking questions about it, it kind of keeps me on edge to where mm-hmm. I. I I revisit some some areas of my of my journey and have that appreciation for it. And that's that's been good. In Utah, you know, right now part of my first manic episode was kind of delving into entrepreneurial thinking, which I hadn't really done prior to that. Mm -hmm. And it kind of transitioned my career um, as a medical profession to entrepreneurial. And then I really Contemplated. Can I combine the two? Can I do an entrepreneurial medical um, career? And you know, I'm just really just open, trying to stay open-minded. That the opportunities that present themselves, will I be ready for something that that appears? Um, and so right now, I'm primarily I'm working at an e-commerce company, and I'm spending a good amount of my time networking with with other founders, if you will, um, and just trying to trying to stay relevant with the community around me, and see if at one point if there's a nice fit to where I can, you know, have another gig, another opportunity come up. Which I don't, I don't see one right now, but you know, in the next year or two, um, I want to be open to that.
0: Yeah, I mean the mental health space is wide open for create creative entrepreneurs. And I don't mean that from a profit motive. I mean that from an opportunity motive that there's yeah. a gap there, a massive void in what's being done to help those with mental illness, mental wellness challenges. Um, obviously treatment is very important as well, but we want to get ahead of that. I mean, I think as an advocate, once you have a prescription, to somebody to fix a problem it's too late for a lot of people and then you just end up being a fire fire chief your whole life putting out fires just constantly and and that seems to be an ongoing fight so if we can get that generation z is kind of where the sweet spot is the statistics show that that um well 50 percent of all mental illness uh is begun or started by the age of 14. so Half of all the mental illness that we have just in this country, you began at the age of 14. So what age is the age we want to focus on? Probably between 14 and 18 and 14 may be too late. Um, But if we can get kids to be able to self-assess, that's huge, you know, mm-hmm. to be autonomous in their decision-making. So they're not being told by a doctor or told by their parents or told by somebody that here's what. A, you have wrong, and here's how you fix the problem. But if we, if we take a more holistic approach and get into these minds before they have the problem, or as a friend of mine says, prehabituation versus rehabituation, um, I think that's how we move this needle. I just, to get a 45-year-old housewife to stop drinking wine every night isn't going to change the narrative. It may save that person's life, and improve the family dynamics in that family, but it's not going to, it's not going to change the narrative. You know, when I was doing the tour this summer, Brandon, when I came out to Utah and saw you guys, or I guess you came to us too. Um, I was quoting early in my talk that 800 Americans die by suicide, alcohol, and overdose a day, Mm -hmm. 800. Okay. I just got the updated numbers. A friend of mine said, Hey Jeff, you need to change that. I said, Oh, what did it go down? Is it 750 a day now? No, it's 822 a day. So from 800 this summer, just when I saw you in August, and now it's, you know, almost at the turn of the of the year. We're almost at the beginning of 2023. By the time people see this, it will be 2023. We've gone from 800 to 822, man. And I, there's more awareness on this stuff. I mean, fentanyl is a household word now. You used to have to spell check fentanyl. Now everybody knows how to spell it. It's like, but more people are dying. We talk about suicide more than ever before. And we see people dying more than ever before. But nothing's getting better. That's my fear. That That's that's what makes me pause and hesitate. Am I doing any good? Because I would like to see some point the numbers start to change. Now I know the overdose numbers. There's some new statistics coming in that they seem to little plateaued in certain areas of the country or certain statistics, but it's like, we really have to nitpick. (laughs) We really got to find certain statistics to show that they're getting better because randomly just picking statistics, you've got a 95% chance that it's worse than it was five or 10 years ago. So where's your optimism? Where's your optimism? What makes you think that we can get out of this in time?
1: man so <laughs> the so how how did hitler convince you know millions of people to do so wrong um mm-hmm. and it comes down to what's called the law of suggestion he he basically continually gave narratives as to why people were were bad um and right. why Generalizing why people are bad and
0: it's brainwashing it's, over time, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's,
1: what's written on people's subconscious is that they get their prejudices, um, and their prejudices come into effect. They they hate these people, and they don't have a premise as to why they hate people. It's been they've been brainwashed into having those prejudices, um, and so we got to do the inverse. We've we've got to rewrite what's on people's subconscious we've got to you know in society and adversarially there there's a a notion as to like we we were all born into an imperfect world and there's there there's been an influx of 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 not so good influences such as drugs and and you mm-hmm. know people in their parent and in their roles as families. I think the role of family has, has decreased. A hundred percent. I think and, that's a big part of it. Yep. And, and we've got to inverse that. We've got to strengthen the family unit and, you know, give, give stronger hope and courage in that relationship and that trust there. We've got to rebuild trust in family units and, mm-hmm. um, and, and go through rewriting what's on our own subconscious first. Um, for example, meditation is a great method to persuade yourself that you are okay, that, that you are safe, uh, you know, to get the fundamentals. Because if we're not fundamentally safe and secure, then that actually allows for the fight or flight response to, to be more active. Meditation is a great way to um, partially intervene and and get at the the root of um putting safety on on your subconscious um, and
0: we like to think we have more control than we actually do and but we also have a lot more control than we think we do as well so If we can spend time, I think James Clear talks about this in Atomic Habits, we're focused on the things that we can control. So today I can control what goes in my mouth. So my diet all day, I can control sugar intake, calories, fat, all that stuff. I can control that. I can control if I exercise or not. I'm in a position. I'm not in a wheelchair. I don't have COVID. I can exercise. I can control that. But I can't control if there's a meteor hurling at the earth, or I can't control if Trump wins the election. I can't control if Russia bombs Ukraine today. I can't control if my granddaughter gets COVID. you know there's things I can't control, but I think we as humans are predisposed or predetermined to somehow get hung up on the things that we can't control. and they become so polarizing. What meditation's done for me, Brandon, is in a way. Especially when I do a guided meditation, but when I'm when the individual's voice says, you know, you know, be attentive to your sounds around you. And then when I close my eye when I'm in meditation and, and I'm I'm listening to every sound, like I can almost hear the trees growing. I can hear you just hear every you're so sensitive on the sounds. You realize, you realize real quickly, Brandon, how insignificant you really are. <laughs> that overwhelming feeling that I'm not really that important. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in a way that everything doesn't revolve around me. I'm not the center of attention. And that's what I think we think we are. We think we, I think a lot of us think we are the most important person on the planet. And that sense of arrogance, that sense of narcissism is toxic. And meditation's got me to be extremely... I think I'm humble. I think I have some humility. But I have to say out of all the things I did for my life, meditation probably's probably the one thing I can't do without.
1: Yeah, I have a buddy who's starting a meditation app that basically you you earn cryptocurrency for meditating. <laughs> Not so, the best
0: time, not the best time to come out with that. Although the price of yeah. crypto is way down. You can get a lot more crypto now than you could have a year ago.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. It's incentivized. So you meditate, then you get crypto. It's- yeah. The, the, the hesitation
0: I would have with that would be that meditations, you know, the app I had, the, I use Sam Harris's waking up app. That's the app I use. And he used to have a streak thing where you would keep track of your, your days of meditation. It was like a reward structure. You know, you've you've got 20 days, 50 days, 60 days. The problem was that people then would just, if I couldn't meditate, they would just turn the app on, let it run. So they get the credit for the day. So he took the streaks off. He can't, you can't reward something that, you know what I'm saying? I mean, so I understand your friend's got an app and that, I, think, I hope it works well for them. I'm all for that. But I would think for me, that would be kind of counter to, to meditation, having a reward structure. But I think for kids, that may work well, you know, to have kids have some incentive to meditate. So once they can try it for a while, then they can decide on their own if it works. And some people just aren't ready for it. You know, Brandon, some people just aren't open for it. I've got people telling me, oh, I can't, there's no way I can meditate. How the hell do you know? (laughs) If you don't think you can, then certainly you can't. But if you could try and just have an open mind, I think you'd be really surprised how not difficult it is to be aware of your thoughts and not identify with them. It's not that hard. And I, I this is coming from someone with attention deficit. And when people hear I meditate, they're just shocked. They're like, "No way, Jeff! You you can't meditate," you know. But it's so helpful, you know, and it's kind of a lost art. Well, let me do this. Let's wrap this up. uh, It's been a fast fifty fifty something minutes, man. um really enjoy your candor, really enjoy your authenticity, really enjoy your um your perspective on a few things, and I really admire the courage for you to talk about your brain injury talk about your challenges that you have in a real public setting on on LinkedIn primarily. Um, Even the pictures that you share with your TMS helmet on and thumbs up and you're smiling. It's like that gives people permission to explore these options in a non-clinical way. Mm -hmm. Instead of being told to go see somebody, here's a helmet, this will fix you. You're kind of embracing these things as opportunities to make yourself better, which you know, in and of itself, that's probably the only way to look at therapy is embrace it and not look at it as you're being told to do something, you know?
1: Thank you. Yeah.
0: How can people reach you? What's the easiest way to reach out to you?
1: LinkedIn is a, is probably the primary way. Um, I'm fairly active there.
0: Well, listen, I really appreciate your friendship. Appreciate you coming on the show. And um, I'm excited to see what the future holds for you next year. And I'm sure our paths will cross many times. I've got so many initiatives going right now. I need to kind of make sure I don't have too many initiatives going on. <laughs> it's easy to
1: take care of yourself, man.
0: Yeah, I know. I got people checking in on me. Even I got two texts this morning from advocates off of LinkedIn that just, you know, hey, Jeff, have a good. Make sure you shut everything off over the holidays, you know, and <laughs> enjoy your family. I'm like, uh. I'm getting better at it so. Well listen man, I love you like a brother. Appreciate what you're doing and keep living under okay?